0: We are driving the conversation for one of the big names that reported earnings last night, uh, Lisa, was uh, Facebook uh, coming in with some numbers that came in a little bit below expectations, particularly as it relates to the top line revenue growth and maybe a little bit higher expenses. So that stock is off about 6.4 percent today and otherwise, you know, pretty strong earnings tape for big tech?
1: Let's be real clear. Facebook did not have bad earnings. They just didn't have amazing earnings. They beat uh, estimates uh, by less than 1%, which was a problem for them. And this sort of highlights this key driver of big tech, which is the expectation that this incredible exponential growth will continue. They're being penalized for not having that necessarily. And still, there are things like Instagram and the fact that you could potentially check out, as Barry Ritholtz was talking about, that could potentially drive. Growth, and we were talking with uh, David Garrity about how the campaign spending that will inevitably be ramping up heading into the 2020 elections will actually help fuel Facebook. So, amid all of that, it still wasn't enough to get anything (laughs) more than a what? You know, we saw the expenses.
0: Yeah, the expenses were up 34%, a little bit more than expected. So the company is investing in the company. A lot of it is for, it's in anticipation of the 2020 election. They've been ramping up their spending on trying to make sure they have the right content, uh, that the content is uh, appropriate content, that the, you know, as we we come up to the election, that they don't have those same issues with election manipulation that we had in the last election. So they're spending a lot of money there. That's ramping up the expenses just at a time when the revenue growth here in this quarter was the slowest. They've reported as a uh, public company, but I think most investors feel like uh, the long-term secular trends of digital advertising really support uh, the likes of uh, not only Facebook, but Google and the others uh, that rely upon di- digital advertising. Yeah. So longer term, you still have Instagram, you still have Messenger, uh, maybe WhatsApp to some degree. Lots of revenue levers that this company can can pull. Yeah,
1: and to be clear, Facebook shares uh, year-to-date are up 1.7%, even with today's 8% plunge, given the fact that the shares have just been on a tear. Uh, let's get... Uh, Dan Ives' opinion on yes. both Facebook and also Much what to look forward. ahead with, uh, Amazon, <laughs> and then this this company called Tesla that seems to be absolutely wow. on a, an ab- absolute tear. Dan Ives is the equity analyst at WebBush Securities, the biggest bull on Tesla, and uh, no, biggest bull, I should say, uh, excuse me, on Apple, and you've been right on that, also seeing positive signs in Tesla. What are you looking at in Facebook as the main reason for today's tumble?
2: I think, I think the stock just got over its skis coming into the quarter. I view it as just a speed bump. I mean, this is a stock in my opinion continues to go higher, two hundred fifty dollar, you know, in terms of our target, and, and, and I view it as one where anytime these fang names get hit, in our opinion, those are buying opportunities because we believe ultimately thirty, thirty-five percent higher, you know, for large cap tech the rest of the year. So let's switch gears
0: to Tesla. The stock just extraordinary, up 11.5% today, uh, all-time high up. It's more than doubled over the last year, Dan. I guess, you know, this has always been a fight between the bulls and the bears on this name, but it
2: looks like the bulls
0: are, are winning this fight right now.
2: Yeah, and I view it as a game-changer quarter. In terms of inflection around demand, especially going 2020 in China, and also profitability, because right now it's going to be a self-funding model going forward. could be $20 earnings power in three years. So I do view this as just a massive inflection point. That's right from a stock perspective in terms of where it should trade. That's going to continue to be a debate. But we believe right now the China thesis, bull case is worth $300 a share, which is how we get to $1,000 in terms of bull case, $20 earnings power.
1: How is it that Tesla is the second most valuable auto manufacturer in the world, considering that its footprint is vastly smaller of the General Motors and Fords of the world?
2: Sure. And, that, and I hear that every day. I mean, for, for years, right, from investors, is it an automotive company or a technology company? And that's why, first off, I view it as a disruptive technology company in terms of a multiple, in terms of what it deserves. But in terms of the footprint relative to others, it comes down to EV demand. It's 2.5% globally. We've we going to 8% in the next four years. You start to put that through. That's why right now, in terms of looking out, Tesla continues to be the core EV play, and penetration rates are so low. I look out a decade, I think one of every 10 cars is going to be EV. And I think that's why right now you're seeing it reflect in the stock as this becomes really a parabolic inflection point. To some extent, similar to what, you know, I think we saw even with the iPhone in 2007 in the smartphone industry in terms of what's happening EV. So, Dan, let's
0: say the market for electric vehicles does develop, uh, you know, very quickly. Can they even make the cars to satisfy that demand, or won't a General Motors or a Toyota or one of the people that already have big factories set up fill that demand?
2: Yeah, and that's really been the shadow, that that was going to happen. I, thus far, if you look at it, they've not just had the moot in terms of Tesla. They've continued to just expand production. Shanghai. Now you have Berlin coming up this year, and production. You'll, there'll be a million cars per year. If you look at traditional auto manufacturers, both in the U.S. and even internationally, been slow, slow to the gate in terms of production, in terms of releasing cars as well as ones that could compete with Tesla just from an EV perspective in terms of mileage and battery relation, So I think that's why right now it continues to be tests Tesla and Musk's world, and everyone else is paying rent in terms of the EV market.
1: Of course, there is this question about profitability per unit, and that's been coming down dramatically. Uh, It remains to be seen how profitable Elon Musk can be as he tries to dominate the electric vehicle market, especially because it really hasn't been taking off as much as people had expected globally when it comes to consumers' preference. I'm wondering, does that concern you, the profitability aspect of this?
2: Yeah, and that... I mean, you obviously raise a great point, because if you go back two, three quarters ago, let's go when the stock's 2, 250, the big issue is they're going to need to raise capital, and they're not profitable. So they do raise capital in terms of the convert, and then profitability starts in terms of the cuts, and they're able to get the volume and show the profit. So that's why right now that's going to continue to be you know, a big question mark. But if you look at what they're approving now, you could get to twenty dollars earnings power two years earlier than expected, and that's a self-funding model. It takes the capital raise off the table, and I think that's really what you're seeing reflect in the stock right now. Is that there could be speed bumps along the way, but as of right right now, it looks like you know like performance.
0: Hey Dan, let's talk about another tech company that's hitting all-time high today. Microsoft, course uh, Microsoft had good numbers. Uh, Last night, what were your key takeaways there? Because I'm hearing some really good things about their cloud business.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this is one, I went quite under the radar, but if you look what Nadell has done and Microsoft, golden touch in terms of the cloud transformation, Azure growth beat by a thousand bips. And I think what you're starting to see now is share shift from Amazon, AWS to Microsoft. In terms of the next phase of cloud, $700 billion that we believe is going to be spent, I think Microsoft is going to be the winner. You saw that in numbers. You saw it reflecting, in It's a rereading in terms of what's happened, the stock, and really a metamorphosis and probably one of the best tech turnarounds, if not the best in the last 20 years.
1: How does that factor into what we're going to see today potentially out of Amazon with AWS?
2: Yeah, I mean, right now, it's going to be a comparison. Because if you look at Amazon, even though growth rates are slowing and it's not necessarily apples to apples, if there's any sort of ding on AWS, it just further solidifies a thesis that Microsoft's gaining versus Bezos and Amazon. And it all comes down, even though there's a lot of noise, Jedi, biggest cloud deal ever, Pentagon, who won it? Microsoft. That trophy's sitting in Redmond. Been a major black eye for Bezos and AWS. And that's right, tonight need to prove to the street that they're not losing share versus Microsoft because all the other indications are, if you look at numbers and everything, all the work we do, they are.
0: So, Dan, that's kind of where I wanted to go. How do you differentiate a layperson like myself between Azure, which is owned by Microsoft, and AWS, which is owned by Amazon? Aren't they just like servers somewhere out in the desert or something?
2: Yeah, and when, and, and I think at the first phase of cloud, that's, where, that's what it was. It, it was Amazon just parabolic expansion on cloud. They owned it in terms of AWS. has been a big you know, key part of the valuation of Amazon. But now what's happening is enterprise, Microsoft's backyard, those companies are moving to cloud. Only 30% of workloads are in the cloud today, going to 55% in the next three years. Microsoft right now, it's their turf, as they move to Azure, they are extremely well positioned and better positioned to win those enterprise deals versus AWS. And then miles behind is Google trailing in third place with GCP.
1: I'm just wondering if you take a holistic look at what we've seen so far out of big tech and the earnings for fourth quarter. Are we seeing enough to justify the rally that we saw last year and to sort of propel it forward to be the leading category yet again in the S&P and the NASDAQ this year?
2: Yeah, I think if you, when you strip away all the noise and forget just the headlines in terms of near-term coronavirus and everything else, you look at earnings, earnings on tech, I view it as major fuel in the engine because you look at where there's parabolic spending going on software in the cloud. Look at the 5G super cycle thesis with Apple. And then I think you'll have strong numbers out of Amazon tonight. Now, there could be little dings here with you saw with Netflix, you saw it with Facebook. I view those as short term issues and I continue to view it as tech's going to continue to lead the charge which is why we continue to be overweight and think we still have 18 months left, at least, in this bull thesis for tech.
0: Hey, Dan, thanks so much uh, for being with us. We love having you on, Talking Tech. You've been very consistent with that bull call, particularly with uh, Apple, been spot on. And right. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely right. Dan Ives, Managing Director of Equity Research for Wedbush Securities, joining us on the phone from New York City.
1: The great migration to ETFs has been treated often in tandem with the shift toward index funding, uh, index funds, and just generally trying to avoid active management. But is that really the path forward for the ETF industry? Joining us now, Ryan Sullivan, Senior Vice President of Global uh, ETFs at Brown Brothers Harriman based in Boston. Ryan, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with this idea of the migration of assets to ETFs. How much is this just a general push toward indexing, and how much is this something specific with the ETF wrapper?
3: Uh, Paul, Lisa, hey, great to be here. Thanks for the time. You know, I think what we're seeing here, this, this great migration that you talked about, we've been seeing this, uh, really take shape over the last few years. Uh, you're, you're spot on. I think historically ETFs are really seen as just a delivery mechanism for, for passive investment strategies and indexing. Uh, but over the last five, six, seven years, we've seen this influx, uh, of, you know, traditional active managers across the globe, uh, really adopt the ETF wrapper, uh, and seek to drive, uh, you know, more specialized, more actively managed strategies. And that's taken shape in both the uh, you know, domestic and international equity strategies, fixed income. Uh, and now this year in our seventh annual uh, ETF investor survey, we're seeing a lot more demand for active ETFs. So this year in particular, uh, 62% of U.S. investors said they wanted to increase their allocations in 2020 uh, to actively manage strategies in the ETF wrapper. Uh, So we think this is really just the beginning of this tilt uh, where ETFs are seen as a a viable wrapper for a number of different types of investment strategies.
0: I'm glad you mentioned active ETFs, because to me that's an oxymoron. What is an active ETF? I thought an ETF by definition is it's passive.
3: Well, yeah, it's historically again. They'd always the strategies within the wrapper had really sought to track a benchmark to track an index. Uh, here, what we're seeing is that active uh, strategies work just fine uh, in this particular wrapper. Uh, traditionally, and for all the ETFs that exist today, whether they're active or passive, they do need to disclose their holdings on a daily basis. Uh, that does make the ETF wrapper a little bit unique and one of the ways it differs from other investment products that usually disclose the portfolio on a lag. Uh, so right now active ETFs do need to disclose that portfolio. Obviously, some asset managers are okay with that. And fixed income, in particular, works very well on that wrapper. Uh, however, you know, over the years, a lot of equity managers were concerned about uh, that opening them up for front-running in their portfolio if they were disclosing their trades each day. This year just before the holidays, we saw some approvals from the SEC here in the States to approve new types of active ETF structures. Uh, So you've got managers like Fidelity, uh, Presidian, T. Rowe Price, Blue Tractor, uh, and the New York Stock Exchange all offering a a new structure that would seek to kind of mirror the disclosure policies of a traditional mutual fund. uh, So delaying the release and the publication of the fund's portfolio, but still putting that in the ETF wrapper. Uh, So again, it's going to the, this notion that ETF, the evolution of this market, is now uh, really enveloping all different types of investment strategies. So,
1: what's the point of going to an ETF and not a mutual fund?
3: Well, there's a, a few structural benefits uh, that the ETF can offer when compared to some other uh, other investment products. So, one, and I think this is typically uh, well understood for, for folks kind of looking at the ETF market, there's been a lot of uh, mentions and media headlines around the so-called uh, fee wars going on in the ETF space. So certainly on one end of the spectrum, you've got very inexpensive, very cheap beta solutions from some of the biggest managers on the planet. Uh, but that low cost is driven by some structural elements uh, within the ETF, wrapper. There's elements like the cost of the transfer agent. This is near and dear to our heart at Brown Brothers, where we really support the plumbing behind these funds. Uh, so the role of the transfer agent is a bit less onerous uh, within ETFs than mutual funds. That can present some cost savings. And one of the ways that they help keep the expense ratio of the fund lower than other investment products. And I would say the other biggest benefit in the U.S. is the tax efficiency that ETFs really drive. Uh, the, the use of in-kind trading between the ETF and the fund's authorized participant, uh, where the portfolio and the ETF shares are exchanged in kind, That's a tax-exempt transaction here in the States, and that really drives a lot of tax efficiency in terms of reducing capital gains to ETF investors.
0: So, Ryan, one of the things that we hear more and more about in terms of investment strategies is focusing on ESG, environmental, uh, social, and governance. Are are you seeing flows into ESG ETFs?
3: We're starting to see them, yes. This is something we've uh, been tracking year on year in our survey in terms of the demand for ESG products. Uh, I think you've got two things kind of coming, uh, em- slowly emerging and taking shape here in the States. We- we've definitely seen stated demand for these products. Uh, you know, it's it's it, it's something that investors over the years have all said that they, they plan to increase their allocations, and we finally got upwards of uh, about 68, 69% of U.S. investors planning to increase ESG allocations uh, across the board. So somewhat uh, product agnostic, but about 68, 69% saying they plan to increase those allocations over the next five years. I think a couple things are at play here behind that. One, increasingly we're seeing public pensions, uh, insurance companies, larger institutional asset managers. Uh, really setting floors for minimum uh, allocations to ESG-oriented uh, investment strategies. And we think that's a trend that will likely continue when those floors, those, uh, those, those minimum allocations will only come up uh, in that institutional community. And I think on the other hand, on the retail side, you've got this large demographic shift that is just beginning to kind of take shape uh, with the wealth transfer to the millennial generation. And as this audience continues to attract assets, as they build capital, that will take time to become clear, but they have such stated preference of, of uh, you know, investing right. according to their values uh, that we think that will be another driver for ESG ETFs.
0: Hey, Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts there. Ryan Sullivan, Senior Vice President of Global Exchange Traded Fund Services at Brown Brothers Harriman, based in Boston, joining us on the phone.
1: We are joined by our own Oracle here, Barry Ritholtz, who we can just say go and he'll go. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg Opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Also, of course, the Founder, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Uh, Joining us here in our Interactive Broker Studios, I want to really focus in on the consumer that has been the main driver of the U.S. economy. A big question has been how much longer can that continue and what is the potential ramification of the strong consumer on the entire retail sector. I want to start with the data we got out this morning. Consumer spending decelerated to a 1.8% pace. This is below projections and the weakest since the first quarter. Do you view this as a potentially concerning sign of a weakening consumer?
4: You know, you you can't just take one monthly report and, and extrapolate it to much of a conclusion. Uh, remember, this year, the holiday season was very strong, up 4.1% year over year. That's very powerful set of numbers. Just keep in mind that 2019 versus 2018 were easy comparables. Remember, Q4 2018, we had a lot of recession fears. The market had sold off about 20%. So maybe people throttled back a little bit last year, and this past Christmas, they made up for it a little bit. So when you look at the broader picture Uh, You know, still growing, but a little softer than expected. That's mostly noise. It's too difficult to say, oh, we're 1.8 instead of 2.2. It's over. Because, look, the landscape is littered with the bodies of economists predicting the demise of the U.S. consumer. So far, it just hasn't happened
0: the consumer's been driving this economy do you feel like that can continue because we're still seeing weakness in manufacturing barriers business investment's not great it's really been hanging on the consumer
4: so the fascinating thing about retail and consumer is there's so many cross currents happening at once it's such a noisy environment it's really difficult to draw and paint broad uh, conclusions so We know we've been going through a retail apocalypse for a decade. The United States wildly um, over retailed compared to other countries like the UK or France or or Japan. We just have seven square feet per person versus five and three and two elsewhere. So we're gonna continue to see retail stores close. And we continue to see 19% year-over-year growth, 19.8 year-over-year growth in online retail stores. Not only is that a big number, it's accelerating versus previous years. So I think this internet thingy is going to be big one day and it's going to continue to grow (laughs) at just an astonishing pace. Online retail is now about 15% of retail up from uh, about a third of that a decade and change ago. We will eventually start to plateau, but there are no signs that's coming anytime soon. So in all these crazy cross currents, Looking at one month of retail sales and saying, oh, that's it for the consumer, really difficult task. Okay,
1: so let's talk about the internet thingy and talk about what a strong consumer means for this thingy that seems to be uh, taking over right. in retail.
4: It's, it's, Technical it's,
1: terms. By the way, I wish that we had a camera showing uh, all of the ham motions. The <laughs> idea that, you know, that he says, you know, paint a broad brush. He's he's literally painting that broad brush across the room. Across the if only studio.
4: there was a camera right six, two <laughs> feet right, in front right. of fair my enough, face. Fair enough, fair enough. You there could is. record it. We
1: just haven't turned it on. Okay, <laughs> so what are, what are you looking at in terms of the disruption in the retail so, sector?
4: So the first generation of disruptors, the Amazons of the world, the Ebays, they've Become very comfortable, and I would never call Amazon complacent. They seem to be very savvy. Um, Jeff Bezos wants to run the world. So, uh, yes. you know, uh, I use Amazon Subscribe and Save and Amazon Prime. And I used to go to Target once a month. And now, if I go twice a year, it's a lot because every month, automatically, the dog food, the paper towels, the toilet paper, all the stuff that would kill my Sunday morning, it just shows up like magic. It's fantastic. <laughs> but I'm a different generation. And if you're under 30, you're mobile first. You are very excited about all of the Facebook properties like Instagram, and Instagram is rapidly becoming uh, not just an influencer like it was a few years ago, but Instagram checkout is becoming this way that you see a pair of sneakers on Instagram that you like and you click on it, and Instagram facilitates that transaction. It's become too easy to make purchases. Keep in mind, this is the fastest growing part of Facebook. And the old joke about Facebook was, well, it's become where my mom and grandma are. Instagram is where the youth are, and that arguably is the future. So that's something that I'm paying close attention to.
0: The gram, or IG, as the kids call it, right? Insta. All Insta? Insta. Right. All right, Insta. It's all
1: about the gram.
0: Stock, actually, you know, Facebook down about 7% today on some of those disappointing numbers from last night, but the company did call out that uh, Instagram uh, checkout as a growth driver. So one of the things when we talk about retail, and we talk to retail analysts, they say that you know the U.S. is still overstored, and we still got to close a bunch more stores. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of, you believe... Believe that, that we're still over. Oh, wild! Even with all the closures of Kmart and what's
4: absolutely. So when you gotta, you gotta be a little more um, thoughtful about looking at the stores that are either like Sears and Kmart are the Walking Dead. No, nobody's told them they're dead. Someone will eventually tap them on the shoulder and say, "Everyone hey, tells yeah, them that they're dead." Well, they just a bond haven't gotten the yet message. they consider. How about JCPenney? Um, Kohl's, JCPenney, go down that whole list of sort of older style department stores, especially in light of not just the general psychological understanding that people derive more satisfaction and happiness out of experiences than consumer purchases, but that's a philosophy that really have seemed to be embraced by the millennial generation. And so the struggle that we see in a lot of retail is... How do we make experience part of our sales process? And some really successful retailers have come up with ways to do that. Same with the direct-to-consumer sales. When, when we look at things like uh, Allbirds, sneakers, or go down the list of the new niche products that are all being sold direct-to-consumer instead of needing a big retail department store to sell it, uh, that's a substantial challenge to the Macy's of the world.
1: Well, if you are a millennial or someone who's under 30 and you feel like you've been pigeonholed by Barry Ritholtz uh, with vast generalizations, please do write to him, B-R-I-T-H-O-L-T-Z-3 at Bloomberg.net. He's wonderful. He will continue to talk with you and and tell you why you should be uh, all about the gram or perhaps more about experiences than things. Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, founder, chairman, chief investment officer of Ritholtz Wealth Management and Oracle of Bloomberg Markets AM. Thank you so much for being with us.
0: Well, the spread of the coronavirus is impacting financial markets far and wide, and that includes the commodities markets as well, including the metals. To get a sense of what's going on there, we welcome uh, Will Rind, founder and CEO of Granite Shares, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Will, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with gold. Gold up again today. I'm looking at the chart. It's a good chart if you're long gold Give us your sense of how gold has been trading as it relates to kind of things going on in the marketplace, including the coronavirus.
5: Well, thanks, Paul. Um, As you already know, I mean, this year has been a good environment for gold. So if it wasn't already a good time for people to buy gold, uh, I think that this whole situation with the coronavirus has just made it even more acute for investors looking for some kind of hedge or some kind of um, response to the confusion out there.
1: All right, hold on a second, full disclosure. You happen to run a gold fund, right? I do. Okay, all right. Let's 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 be real honest. Okay. So, you know, this this sort of comes to a question of how you invest in gold, because you can have a position of whether gold is going to go up from here. And a lot of people do have that. So, yes, you're probably talking your book, but also there are a lot of people who actually back that, given where we are in the economic cycle and given some of the macroeconomic concerns. But going forward, is there a difference in how people access this market?
5: Yeah, so I think, like I said, before this um, coronavirus thing happened, you know, you got central banks increasing their balance sheet, interest rates coming down. So that was already the environment that, you know, a lot of people needed to feel more confident about buying gold. And in some respects, it was a little bit analogous to when gold made an all-time high. You had, you know, quantitative easing happening, um, dollar going down, um, interest rates obviously coming down, particularly real interest rates going negative. So a lot of those components are alive and well today. I think the other part of it, which, you know, has probably dissipated a little bit, at least until um, the last week or so, has been fears of some kind of correction in the market. I think those have kind of gone away a little bit, um, and people have focused more on just expanding the balance sheet and looking for, for some kind of hedge to that. How about some of the other
0: precious metals? Have we seen a similar move uh, that we've seen in gold in others?
5: We, we have, and in many ways we've seen um, some pretty outsized moves in some of the other metals. So, uh, as some of some of the listeners might know, Palladium has been um, a really kind of incredible story um, that went from a metal which was really kind of unloved uh, over the last few years to a pretty severe supply shortage in the market, which has propelled those prices up to $2,200 an ounce. So most people were, were shocked when the price of Palladium went past gold, but then it's now accelerated to more than $2,000 an ounce. Um, similarly, the price of silver has gone up as well. Um, and I think the one that everyone's watching at the moment is platinum because the price of platinum has started to move. But that's been kind of the laggard in the precious metal space but trading at over $1,000 an ounce less than palladium and both of those metals, by the way, the key demand source in catalytic converters for cars, so cleaning the emissions of cars and there's a substitutable effect. So. For all those automakers that use palladium as the primary metal for the catalyst, you can substitute that with platinum. And so people are looking at that.
1: How much of a driver of the price of gold has central bank buying been?
5: Um, It's certainly been important, but it's been pretty consistent um, for a long time now in the market. So uh, I I don't want to discount it in any way, um, but it's been kind of consistent. Uh, technological buying has been pretty steady, about 10% of demand uh, per annum. Jewelry also has been pretty steady, and if anything, jewelry has increased because it's linked to GDP. So when people feel wealthier um, around the world, they tend to use some of that money in gold. You know, Jewelry-wise, trades almost like a luxury good. The marginal investor, the, that, that's the most important thing in my mind for the price of gold. So when you get the investors um, coming in, that's the sort of the swing uh, the swing in the demand curve. And so when you start to see investors coming in and buying more gold, I think that's the thing that's the most meaningful in terms of the price.
0: So gold and some of the other precious metals trading well. Uh, copper, on the other hand, 12 days in a row, I think trading down, if I remember, uh, lowest since 2017, May 20, 2017. What's the story behind copper?
5: Yeah, horrendous story. If, if the precious metals are the kind of the darling of the commodity space, then the ugly sister has got to be uh, copper and certainly any kind of major commodities linked primarily to China. So, very simply, um, the the copper story is intrinsically linked to China because China is the biggest uh, buyer of copper, and so that story is very much linked. So, the bad news in the Chinese economy uh, means all things being equal, less demand for copper. So, it's it's not had a good good run.
1: So as we watch metals sell off more broadly, I mean, the uh, London Metal Exchange is actually poised for its worst monthly decline since 2015. A lot of people are ratcheting back inflation expectations. And once upon a time, gold was a hedge against inflation. How does that factor into the picture now if we don't get inflation and if ultimately uh, you get interest rates going even lower?
5: Yeah, I think... Probably the lesson over the last decade is, you know, certainly when gold prices made an all-time high, you know, back in 2011, I think a lot of people felt like all the quantitative easing that was being put into the market, the interest rate reductions that we saw from central banks all around the world would result in runaway inflation. And that was one, you know, good reason to own gold. Obviously, that didn't happen. And the price of gold accelerated for, for other reasons, which is primarily fear of um, over some kind of um, inflationary expectation, but more often the opportunity cost of gold, i.e. the um, interest rates you know, came down significantly. So I think you know, inflation is certainly on some people's mind right now, but it's not the main reason I think that people are buying gold. I think that people were, were trying to position themselves more defensively for a correction in the market.
1: Will Rind, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Will Ryan is Founder and Chief Executive Officer of Granite Shares based in New York. The Granite Shares Gold Trust I'm looking at right now with $643 million of assets under management has returned more than 19%, nearly 20% in the past 12 months and is up about 4% so far year to date.